As 16-year-old, though some do say it was 17, Lady Jane Grey stood on the scaffold on a bleak winter morning. She looked calmly out over the crowd of spectators on that occasion. Then mustering the strength that she was calling on God to give her, she spoke with such a poise and conviction that even her executioners were moved. After the brief and customary admission of guilt, everybody condemned to death at the time had to publicly admit to the justice of their punishment. Jean emphasized that what mattered to her more than anything else in the world was this. I pray you all, good Christian people, to bear me witness that I die a true Christian woman, and that I look to be saved by none other means, but only by the mercy of God and the merits of the blood of His only Son, Jesus Christ. Jane had ruled England for less than two weeks, only nine days to be absolutely precise, and during one of the most turbulent times in the history of our nation. She became one of the first of more than 300 Protestant martyrs who were cruelly put to death by Queen Mary during her five-year reign on the English throne, what are known today as the Marian Persecution. But to pedal back to the beginning of her life, to tell her story, Jean Grey was born in October 1537, though there's some doubt about when exactly she was born, no doubt when she died, but some confusion over when she was born. But October 1537 is what many of the historians say, and she was born to parents who had royal blood. Henry Grey, Duke of Suffolk, Lady Frances Brandon, daughter of Henry VIII's sister Mary. So she was very well connected, and during her life she stood fourth in line to the English throne. That was after the three children of King Henry VIII, Edward VI, Mary, and Elizabeth. She appears to have been named after the Queen of the Day, who would have been Jane Seymour, the third wife out of six that Henry VIII had, and also the mother, as she was, of the future King Edward VI. Jane's parents were highly ambitious individuals, and they were stopping at nothing to get ahead. They actually hoped that they could take Jane and marry her off to Henry VIII's only son, Edward, he was born apparently in the same month as Jane, and to help this union along, what Jane's parents did was they imposed on her a very rigid system of education. They required her to master Latin and Greek and French and Italian. Nowadays, it's only how good do you look. Back then, it was obviously a lot more than that that made her attractive to any future monarch. In the year 1546, when she was nine, she went to Henry's court, living under the guardianship of Queen Catherine Power, and I'm sure you recognize the name there because she was the sixth and the final wife of King Henry VIII. While it was all part of her parents' selfish scheme to marry her to Edward, to advance the family name, push them forward even further in society, 
in the providence of God, because God is always working all things according to His own will on the earth, in God's providence, getting alongside Catherine Power, coming under her tutelage, led to a huge influence on the life of Jean Grey. Not only was Catherine Parr the most charming and intelligent woman of that day, but she was a woman who was a genuine Christian. In the words of one of her chaplains, her rare goodness has made every day a Sunday. It appears it was during this day in the household of Queen Catherine that Jean came to a living faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. As Paul Zal has noted, Catherine was... Jean's real mother in Christianity. When Henry VIII died, leaving Catherine Parr a widow, and she did remarry quickly afterwards, Jean returned back to her parents' home. On the throne, Henry was succeeded by his son Edward. He was crowned Edward VI on the 20th of February, 1547. He was only at the time nine years of age. Yet he was surrounded in that day by a number of godly counselors, including Thomas Cranmore of the great Protestant Reformation in England, the Archbishop of Canterbury, and he was determined that we are going to make sure England becomes a bastion of reformed truth. But back at home, in her parents' house, in the eyes of her parents, a symbol now of failure, and a wasted effort on their part. Jean poured herself into her studies. She began to excel in Greek, even entered correspondence with some of the continental reformers, big names in the Reformation movement, such as Martin Busser, who was then at that time living in Cambridge, Heinrich Bullinger over in Zurich, and this young woman was growing in grace. And she was becoming knowledgeable and articulate in the faith of Jesus Christ. In January of 1553, the 15-year-old Edward VI became ill with a fever and a cough. From there on, his health was up and down. Worried he was about the fear of the crown. And so he wrote his device for the succession. Who was going to replace him? He was inspired by his father's own will, but it took him a number of drafts to get there. Due to circumstances that appeared, he changed this device, and the line of succession he directed over to his Protestant cousin, Jean Grey. That version was signed by the Privy Council, by at least ten of the country's senior lawyers, Soon afterwards, on Thursday, the 6th of July, 1553, the 15-year-old King Edward died. And then Lady Jean Grey and her husband, Guilford Dudley, became the King and Queen of England. She didn't want to be crowned Queen. In fact, she recoiled from all of that publicity and that position. And she said, you know, the crown really and rightfully belongs to my relative Mary Tudor, better known as Bloody Mary, the staunch Catholic who persecuted and killed many Protestants, already mentioned. But still, despite all of that, on the 10th of July, 
1553, Mary Jane Grey was proclaimed Queen of England, France and Ireland, Defender of the Faith and of the Church of England and Ireland, under Christ on earth, the supreme head. She signed a few documents, maybe up to the number of six. She dined once in state. She made one or two appointments, that was all. Because only nine days after she had come to the throne, Mary marched on London with an army. All but one or two of those courtiers who had sworn, we will defend Eugene to the death. Mary will not get through. They all melted away in the face of Mary's military might. When Mary triumphantly got on to the throne of England, Jean was arrested, confined to a section of the Tower of London, tried, and she and her husband Guilford were found guilty of treason and condemned to death. Initially, Mary seemed bent on showing some mercy. They were cousins after all, and they were actually close before the events of July 1553. But then Jean's father was caught as part of a conspiracy to overthrow the government, and at that point, Jean became just too much of a threat to Mary's reign. She argued as long as Jean is alive. Somebody could try to free her again and set her up as queen, so her death sentence was sealed. Mary had Jane and her husband beheaded on the 12th of February, 1554, on Tower Green. Her father followed 11 days later. Although her life was cut short, the messages that Lady Jane Grey left on record, the prayers that she offered, the other writings associated with her imprisonment in the Tower of London, they have helped create a long-lasting legacy. When this normal, because that's what she would have been, a very normal young woman, when she had to face sudden humiliation, imprisonment, eventually death, the Word of God and Reformed theology, that which she had learned day by day as a young girl in school, in church, through family devotions, under the tutelage of Catherine Power, that rose to huge prominence in her life. And as I poured over her life story, that's what really stood out for me. The key impression, having read as many documents as I could read, the key impression that I came away with was her intimate knowledge of the Bible. It wasn't merely pretty impressive. It was quite staggering. And that is our main point of interest tonight. So consider first about her, her persuasion about the truth. Her persuasion about the truth. Lady Jean Grey acknowledged that she was a sinner, justly condemned by God and His law, and without hope, apart from Christ. Now, we get that from one of her prayers. It was a certain prayer of Lady Jean in the time of her trouble, but historians don't think it was written in the tower just before execution, but in late 1553, and in this prayer she makes a confession that I am a 
sorrowful wretch. She wrote a farewell letter to her sister, Lady Catherine Gray, on the night before the execution, and she described herself as a rich and a wretched sinner. When Lady Jane Grey came to the execution itself, she confessed openly to the Lord some past sins, particularly love of self, love of the world. She thanked God for His mercy. And then she asked for prayer, but she was careful to add, if you're going to pray for me, pray while I am alive. You see what she was doing there? That request alone emphasized how she was rejecting the futility of that Roman Catholic belief of offering prayers for the dead. Only pray for me while I am alive. She then read Psalm 51 in her prayer book, which contains the confession, Have mercy upon me, O God. According to thy loving kindness, according unto the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against thee, thee only have I sinned, and done this evil in thy sight. Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Imagine those words being read by that young woman just before she went forward and put her neck on the block of the executioner. As with all sinners who come to see their sinnerhood, who were brought to repentance and brought to faith. They acknowledge themselves to be sinners in the sight of God, justly deserving His displeasure, without hope apart from His sovereign mercy. So we have confession here. This is fact. All true believers in Jesus acknowledge they are sinners in the sight of God. They agree with what the Bible says in Romans 3 and 23, for example, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. I'm well aware that's a very unpopular teaching today. It always has been. This teaching, well, it caused great offense in Bible times. The prophets got into trouble for preaching men and women are sinners. John the Baptist lost his head for castigating those who were sinning before him. Our Lord Jesus Christ, these persons were pilloried and persecuted because they dared say all men and women are sinners. This Bible doctrine has been denied by liberals right from the beginning of history, following in the train of the devil himself, and they still oppose the teaching about sin today. However, until this truth about ourselves is admitted that we are sinners, the gospel does not make sense. Why have a sacrifice of Jesus Christ for sin if there are no sinners out there to bear their penalty? And when our Lord came to preach, you will know that the very first line in His preaching was a call to men and women to repent. 
Mark 1 and the verse 15. John did the same. Peter did the same. Now tell me this. In proclaiming this truth, all are sinners, are Christians saying to non-Christians, you're bad and we are not? As in, we are the government knocking at your door and we want to assure you we're here to help you. No, not at all. It's the case of one beggar telling another where we have found bread. We once were burdened, sore with sin, and dark were we and sad, but Christ has washed us in His blood, and He has made us glad. Fly to His wounds like we have done, ye guilty ones. His love and mercy share. We cannot leave you lost and lone. We want you over there. Confession. But then we move on to condemnation. Because all true Christians acknowledge, not only am I a sinner, but I am rightly condemned on account of that sin. Romans 2 and 2. But we are sure that the judgment of God is according to truth against them which commit such things. We can't say, no, it's not us. We didn't do it. We don't deserve this. Uh, Back off. Give us more lenient treatment because that's what we deserve. We can't do that. Rather, we stand before God and we acknowledge we are being rightly condemned. We do deserve this. We admit the truth about ourselves. We also admit God's judgment against us is just. And that's not the typical reaction of people who are judged. Ask any judge, solicitor, lawyer, people they're dealing with, cases they're handling, and they're meeting all the innocent people of the day that you could possibly imagine. No, no, we didn't do this, and we're not guilty of that, and all the rest of it. There must be, before God, no shifting of the blame, condemnation. But then another term, compassion. All true Christians acknowledge that their only hope is to be found in God's mercy. Not in ourselves, not in our works, not in anything we do, think, imagine we can do in the future. Our only hope is in God's mercy. We are sinners under God's just judgment. How do we get away from that? Only by the mercy of God. Romans 5, the verse 6 and the verse 8, we read very familiar words. For when we were yet without strength, In due time, Christ died for the ungodly. But God commendeth his love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And here's the important thing that we acknowledge ourselves tonight to be without hope, apart from God's sovereign mercy. Lady Jane acknowledged that. So must we. Her persuasion about the truth. But then think secondly about her pardon through the truth. Her pardon through the truth. At the place of execution, Jane emphasized to those who were there what mattered more to her than anything in the world. We've given you her prayer. I pray you all, good Christian people, to bear me witness that I die a true Christian woman, and that I look to be 
saved. Oh, how is she going to be saved? That I look to be saved by none other means, but only by the mercy of God and the merits of the blood of His only Son, Jesus Christ. She was finding pardon in Jesus. Her theological training stands out really strongly. In her account of a three-day discussion she had with John Feckenham, who was an abbot sent by Queen Mary to persuade Jane Turn and accept the Roman Catholic faith. This Benedictine monk was no stranger to debate. He had engaged a number of the leading theologians in the early 1550s, men in the Reformation line, men like John Hooper, men like John Jewell. And I'm sure, having come off the back of debates with these men, looking at this young woman, Lady Jane Grey, he must have thought she's going to fold under the power of my reasoning. After Jane had confessed her faith in the triunity of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, she affirmed people are saved, you know, by faith alone. Justification by faith alone. Feckingham was maintaining salvation. Oh, no, 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 it's not by faith alone. It's received by faith and love that you show in your good works. But Jane stood her ground, and she replied, I affirm that faith only saves. But, she said, it is meet for Christians in token that they follow their Master Christ to do good works, yet may we not say that they profit to salvation. For, although we have all done all that we can, yet we be unprofitable servants, and the faith only in Christ's blood saveth. Utterly convinced that faith only saveth. She then went on to engage this Roman Catholic emissary confidently, passionately. She dismantled Feckingham's arguments about the Mass by pointing out our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. He sacrificed Himself once and for all on the cross, and that He was only offering an ordinary piece of bread well, while He was present in the body, and when He said to His disciples, this is my body. It wasn't body, it was bread, she said, Luke 22 and the verse 19. Feckingham pushed her, and he said, well, what do you receive in that sacrament? Do you not receive the very body and blood of Christ? Lady Jane replied, no, surely I do not so believe. I think that at the supper I neither receive flesh nor blood, but bread and wine. Which bread, when it is broken, and which wine, when it is drunken, putteth me in remembrance? How that for my sins the body of Christ was broken, and His blood shed on the cross, and with that bread and wine I received the benefits that came by the breaking of His body and the shedding of His blood for our sins on the cross. What a stand she took. 
And it directs a very pertinent question to our conscience tonight. Do we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as the Son of God and only Savior of sinners? And do we receive and trust Him alone for salvation as He is offered in the gospel? This is the only way by which anyone can become a Christian and ultimately enter God's heaven, having faith in Christ's person and work alone. We're talking about truth and its embrace here. All of God's people have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, Acts 16, 31, trumpets, and thou shalt be saved. John, he records, as many as received him, to them give he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. John 1, verse 12 and 13. Truth and its embrace we receive Christ by faith. Truth and its essence. All true Christians embrace what the Bible teaches about Christ's person. You remember the confession that Peter made in Matthew 16, 16, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. John 20, verse 30 and 31 records, And many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of His disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written, that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing ye might have life through His name. What is Paul saying to the Romans in Romans 10 and the verse 9? That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. It's important, vitally important, how we view Jesus Christ. Truth, it's embrace. Truth, it's essence. It's faith that is connected and resting on Christ. But then another thing. Truth and its expiation. All true Christians embrace the Bible's teaching about Christ's saving work. The word expiation, covering, atonement, it takes us to the cross, what Jesus did there. It fulfills what John said about Christ when he saw him in John 1 and 29. Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. Truth, it's expiation. Not only that, truth is exclusivity. We're going down a one-track road here, and we make no apology for it. All true Christians acknowledge that Christ is the only way of salvation. We are taught in Acts 4 and 12, neither is there salvation in any other. For there is none other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. And so the question is, do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and in Him alone for salvation? In a Westminster Shorter Catechism, question 86 is this, what is faith in Jesus Christ? The answer is, faith in Jesus Christ is a saving grace whereby we receive and rest upon Him alone for salvation as He is offered to us in the gospel. That's what Lady Jane Grey did to you. Her persuasion about the truth, her pardon through the truth, and then finally, her perseverance 
in the truth, her perseverance in the truth. If the life of this young woman says anything to you and me, puts her feminine hand on our shoulder and says, here's a lesson you can learn, it would be this. Her life is an encouragement to persevere, an encouragement to persevere. If we are grounded in the gospel, if we are rooted in sound biblical theology, then trials will not catch us unprepared. Rather, they will strengthen the faith that comes by hearing. They'll hold us up when the big issues come. They'll fortify us when the trials burst into flames and become fiery. They'll keep us pressing on with a focus for the prize that is set before us, and they'll make us rest on the word of our Savior, that he which hath begun a good work in us will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. We sing, he will keep me till the river rolls its waters at my feet. Then he'll bear me safely o'er where the loved ones I shall meet. Yes, I'll sing the wondrous story of the Christ who died for me. Sing it with those saints in glory gathered by the crystal sea. Perseverance. We see that in the life of Lady Jane Grey and the way that she endured sorrows. That certain prayer that we referred to of the Lady Jane in the time of her trouble written not at the time of execution, but back in 1553, she was expressing the hope that ultimately, in her trial, God would give her deliverance. O merciful God, she prayed, consider my misery, best known unto thee, and be thy now unto me a strong tower of defense. Suffer me not to be tempted above my power, but either be thy a deliverer unto me out of this great misery, or else give me grace patiently to bear thy heavy hand and sharp correction. And at the end of the prayer, she references thy Son Christ, who shed his precious blood on the cross. Deliver me, sorrowful wretch, out of this miserable captivity and bondage wherein I am now. Ultimately, she was looking for deliverance. But immediately, right now, in the moment of trial, she was praying for doubtiness. And in her prayer, she says, Only in the meantime, arm me, I beseech thee with thy armor, that I may stand fast. And in that prayer, she just goes through all the armor of God that my loins being girded about with verity, having on the breastplate of righteousness, shod with the shoes prepared by the gospel of peace above all things, taking to me the shield of faith whereby I may be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked, and taking the helmet of salvation and the sword of thy spirit, which is thy most holy word, praying always with all manner of prayer and supplication that I may refer myself holy to thy will, abiding thy pleasure, and comforting myself in those troubles that it shall please thee to send me. 
Hear me, she concludes. O merciful Father, for his sake. Did you know that when she went to the executioner's block, she was accompanied by your guy again, John Feckingham. Couldn't get rid of him. He was available. Should Jean wish to convert to Roman Catholicism in her final moments and to offer her whatever spiritual comfort he could, should she choose not to convert? No Protestant preacher was allowed. No pastor was able to be with her. But Jean did not abandon the truth of Holy Scripture, even in the dying hour. Her perseverance is seen when she was exhorting schismatics. When she was in prison, she wrote a letter to a Thomas Harding, who had been her former chaplain, who had renounced his faith in the gospel and gone over to Romanism. She was alarmed. People have commented in history how in one paragraph of this boldly explicit message that she sent to Thomas Harding, she just naturally rolled off the tip of her tongue. She quoted about 11 Bible verses, one after another. Now, if I tell you she did not mince her words to this traitor to truth, you'll still not be prepared for what she said to him. She said, I cannot but marvel at thee and lament thy case, that thou, which sometimes worked the lively member of Christ, but now the deformed imp of the devil, sometimes the beautiful temple of God, but now the stinking and filthy kennel of Satan. Sometimes the unspotted spouse of thy Savior, but now the unshamefast paramour of Antichrist. Sometimes my faithful brother, but now a stranger, an apostate, yet sometimes my stout Christian soldier, but now a cowardly runaway. She didn't miss him, did she? And she went on. Because he had moved to Rome, she said, Christ offered up himself once for all. And wilt thou offer him up again dearly at thy pleasure? But thou wilt say thou doest it for a good intent. O sink of sin, O child of perdition, canst thou dream of any good intent therein when thy conscience beareth thee witness of the wrath of God promised against thee? She implored him, be not ashamed to come again with Mary and to weep bitterly with Peter, not only with the shedding of tears out of your bodily eyes, but also pouring out the streams of your heart to wash away out of the sight of God the filth and the mire of your offensive fall. Be not ashamed, she said, to say with the publican, Lord, be merciful unto me, a sinner. And she writes on. And she said, last of all, let the lively remembrance of the last day 
be always before your eyes, remembering the terror that such shall be in at that time. She tells him, you're one of those runagates and fugitives from Christ. The last day is going to discover you. It'll be terrible for you. You'll be missing out on inestimable joys. But she says, maybe Christ stretcheth out his arms to receive you back again if it might stand with his determinate purpose. She persevered in standing for the truth right to the end. And not only, not only did she endure sorrow, exhort schismatics, but right to the end, she evangelized souls. Several of her prison letters were published in print shortly after she died. One of them was a letter to her younger sister, Lady Catherine Gray, written on the night before her execution, on the pages of a New Testament in Greek. I have sent you, my dear sister Catherine, a book which, although it be not outwardly trimmed with gold or the curious embroidery of the artfulest needles, yet inwardly it is of more worth than all the precious mines which this vast world can boast of. It is the book, my only best and best loved sister, it is the book of the law of the Lord. It is the testament and last will which he bequeatheth unto us, wretches and wretched sinners, which shall, she said, lead you to the path of eternal joy. And if you with a good mind to read it, and with an earnest desire follow it, no doubt it shall bring you to an immortal and everlasting life. She's pleading with her younger sister. Come to Christ. This book, it will teach you to live. Learn you to die. And she warns her, just because you're young, don't be putting it off and thinking, this won't happen to me. She did die young, by the way. Trust not that the tenderness of your age shall lengthen your life. And she signs off, farewell once again, my beloved sister, and put your only trust in God, who only must help you. I think it tells us, does it not? It's time maybe to lift the pen or start typing on the keyboard and connect again with some in our own family who need Christ, that her hands will not be stained or chargeable with their blood. It's fantastic advice that she gives to that sister. We can't give any better counsel. And so we say tonight, you too will die. You're a sinner under the just judgment of God. Only Christ, by His mercy, can reach and save you. Be ready for your final day. You don't know how close that is. Oh, be saved. His grace is free. Oh, be saved. He died for thee.